welcome to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines, changing the conversation around divorce. This show is sponsored by Penguin in the Room. Penguin in the Room is an award-winning arts, marketing and social media management company. If you want to jazz up your socials and have someone Instagram and tweet for you, then here's your answer. Go to www.penguinintheroom.com. As always, hit subscribe to make sure you're updated about new episodes. And we love to hear from you on social media at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. You can also email us all the infos on our website, thedivorcesocial.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode, I spoke to April Pride, who is a creative entrepreneur and... She works in cannabis and psychedelics. So she's over in the States in Seattle, where a lot of these things are legal. And obviously, I have to remind you that if you're in the UK, all of these drugs are illegal to buy and consume. Um, But she talks about her experiences with psychedelic drugs, getting her through her divorce and also her career around them, as well as being the one to leave the family home and her two sons and being in lockdown with her partner after deciding that she was going to separate. So it's a really interesting one. Lots of subjects that we haven't really covered in the podcast before. And I found her absolutely fascinating to talk to and just to find out more about the world of psychedelics and cannabis and what's going on in the US with the kind of use of those in a medical scenario and for mental health. So again, let me remind you that this podcast does not advocate that you should take drugs. It is your personal decision. I'm not promoting that in any way. I'm just sharing someone's experience and another reminder that um, taking, buying these drugs in the UK is illegal. I am joined by April Pride, a creative entrepreneur in cannabis and psychedelics. Welcome to The Divorce Social. Hi, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm very excited to talk to you. We've never talked about anything like this before on the podcast. Um, But how does it feel to be on the divorce social? (laughs) I've heard you ask this question before. (laughs) And of course, I thought about how I might answer it. And if you had asked me a year ago, I think I would have cried. (laughs) But um, I'm freshly divorced. And my divorce was final in January 2022. I'm so happy that I'm 18 months in. I heard Julie Cohen, a previous guest, say that it takes three years. And my mom told me it takes a year. And I felt a lot better after a year, but we're not quite there yet. But yeah, I don't cry every day anymore. And I look forward to, yeah, moving forward. Yeah, it's been great actually great. recently. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I don't even know how far in I am now. My breakup, my separation was 2019. 
So I'm like away in and I feel wonderful if that helps. So looking forward to that. Fingers crossed for you. Um, so can you take us back to, obviously it's still quite fresh, but to that separation time, where were you in the world, in your career, in your life? Yeah. So it was February, 2020. And I decided that it was, we had been together since college, since we were 22. And so that was 23 years at that point, it was over half my life, or I guess I was staring down half my life. So I was about to turn 44 in March. We had been together for 22 years. And so in February, it just was pretty clear that um, we weren't going to get there. Right. And we had a beautiful family with two sons that are now ages 13 and 16. And then lockdown hit. And we, you know, every day, every two weeks, it kept getting longer. And so we made the commitment to enjoy this time, you know, just bittersweet. So last time we're going to be under one roof with our family. And that ended up being a year and a half. I had scheduled a family counselor, someone that we had, or marriage counselor, someone we had worked with before. I had to do it six weeks in advance and it ended up being the first week of lockdown here in Seattle. I'm based in Seattle, Washington. So that's how we kicked off lockdown. And, you know, we had the time to go on walks with the dog and talk about what we wanted this to look like and how we felt. And it went back and forth. He was, he was open to it looking a lot of different ways. I'm bisexual. I've heard you and others on your podcast talk about that. So we, when we were 22, that's not, that's not how we entered into our relationship. Right. So I really just had to think about not only what was best for me, but I watched what he was willing to just compromise on for himself. And I loved him too much to let him do that. Right. So yeah, that's, that's where our heads were for about 18 months. And then I moved out and I think it finally hit him that I was real. So that's when it started for him, but I was healing during the pandemic. Yeah. So had you made the decision then together, you know, you talked about it before lockdown that you were going to break up or was it a kind of things aren't going well? Why did you book the marriage counselor? I'm just wondering where you were in your heads at that time. Yeah. He was wondering the same thing. That's how I was going to tell him. He did not know. I thought having a third person there would be helpful. Do not do that. Apparently no one wants to be told their life is about to change in front of a witness. So, but I, yeah, I just thought that someone could help us talk through it in a constructive way. It didn't feel like, you know, I had a friend who said that when she told her husband, she wanted to get divorced, he would mock her and laugh at her. And maybe I had that in my head, like, is he not going to believe that this is really going to happen perhaps? Yeah. It felt like there was an accountability there to have somebody on the calendar to talk about this on my side of things. That's interesting. So how long before that, because you'd obviously planned to tell him then in front of the counsellor. And in some ways you said, don't do that because that person doesn't want to have a witness. But in some ways, I guess I can see that you thinking, oh, and then he'll have someone to talk it through with might help. But so how long were you like planning that for? It hit me like a lightning bolt at the end of January. Just, yeah, I'm not going to say that it hadn't been in my, in my thoughts previously, right? Of course, 23 years, a lot of thoughts come and go, but this time I just couldn't deny it. Right. And, uh, so I decided at the end of January, call the counselor beginning of February, we went on a big family vacation in February, got back, think it was my birthday and things got really, you know, my birthday party was the last party most people had went to for a couple of years. So um, I went through all of these things, socializing with him, knowing that this was coming. And every time I'd ask myself, okay, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? So I had the time, right? That's where the timeline, it was just in like a couple months. I told my parents before too. So again, I think that's an accountability thing. Yeah. I mean, he handled it pretty well. I don't know that he was totally shocked. I thought he I think he thought we could have come up with another solution that would allow us to keep the family intact and, you know, allow me to do what I needed to do. But that wasn't going to be healthy for either one of us to move forward in that way. So you've made this decision. You've booked the counselor to make it happen, have accountability, and then you are locked down with Mm -hmm. your partner who you've just told that you want to break up with. Yeah. How did you cope? 
we had sex straight away right after the counseling session. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And we just did that a lot during lockdown. I mean, I feel felt like how else are we going to go through this and not want to kill each other? And if, you know, it just felt like we liked having sex with one another and I knew it would help keep the peace. Right. So it was an interesting time for sure. That's it's funny you say that because I think I had sex with my ex because a lot of people on the podcast say that you know maybe this sex life with their partner dried up before the breakup but I think we had sex really close to when we broke up because it was a kind of trying to find the intimacy again so we'll have sex and see if that works I think it was still good but it was strange but how was that sex was it the same as the sex had always been in your marriage or was it did it have a different feeling to it both right so over a year and a half I'd say there was a little bit of both I um a couple of times I was surprised I got angry I was angry and I think that just was from this feeling of being really really stuck and knowing that this is such a big part of my life intimacy and my sexuality and to just have that denied for God at that point we didn't know how long this was going to go on was not something that I was excited about. Um, neither was he, but it was, it, mm, I'd say the last six months were not that healthy probably to keep doing it because I just wasn't in it. But from a physical standpoint, it was nice to be close to somebody and, you know, I know how to do that <laughs> and it, it can be fun. So yeah, I think we just made the most of it. But when I moved out, I, I think it was the right time yeah did it help the situation between you two in lockdown or did it oh yeah cloud no it? question we were oh yeah we were super close we we talked about everything yeah I mean we were able to just be with our kids our kids did not know so we were able to be with them and still be affectionate with one another I mean honestly we got along better than we had when I think we had ever gotten along in front of our kids to the point when we told them we were getting divorced, my older son asked if we were joking, right? He's just like, you're kidding, right? Wow. So yeah, it was sort of devastating on all fronts because we got to this place where, was, you know, it's really firing on all cylinders. And yet it still felt like there was something missing. And I didn't know if that was a person in my future or just something between the two of us that we couldn't quite get there. But I do know that I, I, there's been a lot of reflection and I understand my role in how this transpired. At least I think I do. And, you know, I'm a workaholic and I've just recently learned in the last year that workaholism is a type of OCD. And I had OCD in high school. And if you come to my, my place, you'd probably be like, yeah, she probably got a little bit of OCD still in her. So I think that I'm, you know, I'm trying to manage that because I don't want to get into another relationship where the way I'm trying to show love is to be a financial equal in the partner, right? So I'm working, 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 not giving any attention. <laughs> so yeah, I understand a little bit better now. So that's why I'm not in any rush to do anything because I'm still working, 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 working. <laughs> I know what um you mean about you know the working because I think my career has always been such a strong focus for me and such a strong identity for me that then when I was in a marriage I suddenly didn't know how to not work as much as I'd always worked and the fact that I had to dedicate some of my time to the relationship I sort of looking back I think I wasn't willing to give up that little extra career time for relationship time. I think now I have much more of a, a balance, I hope, I feel. So you, you then decided to move out after that lockdown period. How was that? Did you have to find a house? Did you rent? Were you able to be financially independent? Yeah, those are good, great questions. I actually, so the house that my co-parent is still in, and the boys are there half time is a 10 minute walk from where I live now. So I had some stipulations. My parents have been divorced. Um, they were divorced when I was an, a nine years old and my dad never lived more than a 10 minute drive away. For me, I have much younger siblings. 
and my mom moved when I was a senior in high school. So not quite the same, but my experience growing up was that my dad was close and he was a phone call away. And I wanted that too. And I moved out because our house was six blocks from his parent is six blocks from his parents' house. So transition is probably easier for me. I'm 3000 miles away from home. I'm from the East coast and I live here in Seattle. So he wanted to stay in the house and that felt like, yeah, it's possible. So as the date is approaching, I realized like, what if an expert says that the mother leaving two sons is absolutely the worst thing that you can do? They'll have issues with women their whole life. I mean, so I called up a professional, I called up a therapist, and then we got the marriage counselor back on the phone. And I just said, oh, he was actually, this therapist was helping us through our mediation. So he was on every call for six weeks. And this time I did not tell him, I thought maybe we should consider me staying in the house in front of anybody. I did that on a walk, the two of us. And he wasn't, he didn't want that. But in order to make my argument really good, I found an awesome place. I'm like, look at this. This is an amazing bachelor pad. I mean, it'd be great for me too, but I don't know. It, it may not be all bad if it turns out that, you know, it's better if you leave the house. And so I found this awesome place that I now live in. I'm renting it. It's a condo. I really wanted to be in a condo. I did not want to be on the ground floor anywhere. I didn't want anyone sneaking into my my windows. So yeah, I kind of, like I have a good place. I'm happy here. I'm renting. I have an option to buy, but that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense right now. Yeah. And in terms of the finances, I opted to um, to just take everything at once. I still have my half of my equity in the house which I'm about to sell. Um, and I'm an entrepreneur, right? So the last time I had a big win, it was 15 years of not making money, right? So I'm in the middle of getting to the spot where I can just breathe easy and I'm trying to stay really, really cool about it. But I put myself through college. I've been financially independent since I was 15. Um, and then my husband, you know, he came from means and also had a really good job. So there has been a change and there will continue to be a change if I can't take care of myself, but I just didn't want, I told him, I was like, you're not going to like me if you have to just transfer cash every month. Let's just, you know, keep this as clean as possible. So that's how we handled it. So did it feel important to be financially independent for you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's what I've been trying to prove my whole adult life on top of having a very flexible schedule so I can be a mom you know, it's just like you're trying to, you know, make everybody happy all the time. So um, with the time that I have, you know, only having the boys half time, I guess I have more time to work. And that's what I did for the first year. And I'm trying to have more balance. But yeah, I'm just still kind of in the middle of it. And looking at the goal, everything that's happening around us with the economy is not really helping me stay cool. But <laughs> it is what it is. I feel you as a yeah. self-employed person. It's interesting that you said about, you know, wanting to move out, but then thinking, oh, am I going to kind of damage my two yeah. boys? If anyone's listening and they're thinking of moving out of the family home mm -hmm. and, you know, and they're in a heterosexual facing relationship, a man and a woman, and they're the woman, you know, because it, it sounds rarer, doesn't it? We don't hear about it, I guess, as often the woman leaving the family home. Mm -hmm. What? What helped you at that time make that decision? What did that therapist say when you said, am I going to damage my boys? Well, he just said it, it makes no difference if it's the mom or the dad. It's really everybody being there on moving day and participating in some way. And, you know, the person that is leaving feeling supported. So I trusted him. And I, listen, I was just so grateful that we got to keep the family home, right? That that was still going to be a constant in my kid's life. So that was a, a win. And I was an interior designer for a long time. I went to architecture school and I have my master's in interiors. Anyway, so it was going to be really easy for me to set up a new house, right? A lot easier than him. Um, so yeah, it all just sort of pointed to, hey, April, you can do this. I do kind of like change. I'd been in the house for 17 years. I'd never lived anywhere more than a year at a time until after college when I lived in an apartment for four years and that was it. So um, yeah, I think I was ready for just to shake things up a little bit too. And before you said you felt stuck. So I guess this new space for you is like a, you know, a metaphor for a new start. 
So what did you do to that new space to make it feel your own? Do you remember like the first purchase? Yes. Yes. I knew I had earmarked a few things from the house that were going to come with me. And I replaced like a sofa for them. And I made sure that house didn't feel like someone came in and took a bunch of stuff away. And then there were all these holes. So they went away on a vacation. And while they were gone, I kind of made it what it was going to be like. And it wasn't that different. Right. So that was good. Um, But I gave myself a mandate that I would buy as many things that were used as possible. I didn't want to buy new furniture. I mean, new pots and pans. Yes. But that sort of most stuff. Yeah. I was able to kiss there's such great vintage stuff. Um, so that's what I really wanted to do. So I bought an, another awesome sofa that's like from the 1960s from Switzerland or something. It was really cool. Um, just, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I studied furniture in grad school. So yeah, I'm kind of a geek about that. I love those things. I love those purchases that anyone else would be like, yeah, I mean, it's a cool sofa, but what? But you're like, but this is my sofa now and I can buy exactly what I want and get excited. Yes. Yeah. The other decision that I made was that, I mean, I mean, we don't have an art collection, but we had things on the wall, right? And not all those things were going to come with me. And I thought, okay, when I do get to a place when I can buy art again, I only want to purchase from women artists. And that's been an interesting exercise as I go through and bookmark stuff and artists who I like and, you know, one day maybe. Yeah, it's I'm really, really excited to start adding to my walls. They're pretty bare. <laughs> so you mentioned women going to be on your walls with their art but on earlier you mentioned coming out as bisexual as well so how did that play into your new life it hasn't quite yet I haven't I've tried dating apps I tried two sort of more straightforward ones for about 20 minutes (laughs) set up profiles and realized this is a job (laughs) like it can take a lot of your time and that was a year ago. And I was just like, nope, I'm not, I don't want to spend my time doing this. I'd rather be reconnecting with friends who I haven't had the time for or whatever pandemic than that. And then I went on an app called field. I don't know if you have that in the UK. It's where you get matched with people who have like kinks. And I went, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's, I thought it was cool just because everyone's so goddamn, I mean, maybe they're not being honest, but they're like this, the people whose profile is really explicit. This is what I'm into. This is what I need from you. It was just like, how do I get to that place where I know so much about myself and what I want? That is what I am looking for. So I had, um, I did that when I was on vacation and then my vacation got cut short because of weather. So I never met up with anyone, but I did some flirting. That was fun. Um, no, I've only hooked up with guys. So why do you think that is? Because that's what I've done for my whole life, right? It's just some super heteronormative and I haven't, I'm not in any rush. I'd rather, I'd feel better if I spent the time now trying to feel settled and then just know that I'm open, right? I'm open to meeting people. I go out and we'll see what happens, but yeah, nothing yet, nothing to report. <laughs> it's interesting because I can totally relate to that. I remember you know, hooking up with guys because I know how that works because I've done that before. And it's like you go out and you can notice the signs. And then all of a sudden I was like, like, what are the signs when it comes to women or non-binary people? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I used to download um, dating apps, like same sex dating apps, and then go on them and set up a profile and then like delete them 20 minutes later, like you of like, oh, I just can't, it's too much. Um, And a friend of mine actually started going to some queer events that aren't necessarily around dating, but they kind of enjoyed that as like a way into the community. And I quite like that. And I mean, now I because I dated women and men after my divorce, but now I'm in another relationship with a man. And I and I was almost like annoyed with myself because I was like, this is my time to like meet new people and and date women and you know I told my ex that I was bisexual at the end of our relationship and then I was like oh no I've met another man (laughs) and I sort of felt guilty for like being a being a bisexual person and sort of not like showing the world that I was and being in another 
heterosexual facing relationship and do you feel do you feel any of that when you like hook up with men are you like no I should be hooking up with women or are you much more um sorted than me I don't think that I'm much more sorted than you (laughs) (laughs) um let's see how do I feel about that I mean it's fascinating people do not hear the word bisexual they hear lesbian (laughs) and that has been yeah, it's made me, I mean, one of the things that um, my co-parent told me before I moved out was, listen, I'm looking at all this. Most bisexual women are married. So like, are you worried? You know, are you going to be in a relationship with someone who's married? Like, I don't know what I'm going to end up doing. I don't know who, where they fly their flag. I don't know how this is going to go down, right? It's like anything else in life. You kind of take a step forward and cross your fingers. Um but even on the apps, there's not, I mean, men say this, that there aren't a lot of women on apps. And I get that as a woman, you know, that's interested in women. There aren't a lot of women on apps. And maybe there aren't a lot of women who are open about their sexuality or are in touch with it. You know, I'm Gen, I'm Gen X. So I'm, I just turned 47 actually. And I think my generation is probably less inclined to step forward and be like, yeah, this is what I'm up to. So, um, and I don't really want to date anyone younger than me, that much younger than me. I've got, I've got a, <laughs> this direction, this many years, this direction, same amount of years. And I'm kind of good there. Um, so I think it's probably, is going to take me a little bit longer. His concerns were valid and from a, like an accessibility standpoint, but we'll just have to see how this all shakes out. I think the bisexuals are out there. If you, if you know where to look for I them, you just have to find that. <laughs> I mean, I think. The interesting thing for me is on same-sex dating apps, a lot of the time if I said I was bisexual, people would unmatch with me. Yeah. Because they'd they'd be like, well, actually, you're just a lesbian, but you're not committing to it. And I was like, no, no, I like everyone. (laughs) That's the point. Um, So there is, it's, I saw a statistic the other day that the majority of the queer community is bisexual but the visibility of bisexuals and pansexuals is the lowest oh for sure i mean i think it's probably like any other range right you've got 10 percent on the far end in each direction i'm totally heterosexual i'm 100 percent gay homosexual in the middle though i think there's a lot of you know like oh i like this for this and that for this and as people realize that um mm, a lot of people behind the scenes, right, have sorted out what they're into, but they're just not open about it. And that's okay, for sure. I feel like there is this pressure to like, be performative, you know, and it's just sort of like, no, this is just what's going on. I don't, yeah, there's nothing really salacious here to dig into, right? I'm just sort of, I'm sorting it out too, just like a 13 year old or 14 year old girl. <laughs> I like that be performative as a phrase, though, because I think, especially when you're in the public eye a little bit, you know, you have a following or something on social media. When I came out as bisexual, it sort of publicly, it became a bigger thing than I thought it was going to be. And I wrote an article about it. And so now I I think I have a pressure of be of I need to perform it as opposed to just living as me. Yeah. Which is a strange pressure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ding dong, it's the ad break. This podcast is sponsored by Penguin in the Room, an award-winning company that can manage your business's social media. They even manage our podcast, Instagram and Twitter. Just email info at penguinintheroom.com for a quote. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can by buying merchandise from our website, www.thedivorcesocial.com. Ding dong. So you're still getting there with your dating journey. You've had some hookups. That's exciting. Yeah. And what about um, your emotional journey? Was there anything you did, you know, after you moved into your new place as a way to help you start recovering? Yeah. So as you mentioned in the beginning of the, in the intro, um, I work in cannabis and psychedelics. So I moved in on like a Monday and I, I took some mushrooms on Friday and with the intention of like, I'm going to feel this. I am not going to distract myself by dating. I'm not going to distract myself with substances. I'm not going to distract myself. Like I really knew that I wanted to be on the other side of this. And the <laughs> fastest way to do that was to go right in through it, you know, and just deal with it. And I cried like I, the only time I've ever cried that way is when my dad told me my parents were getting divorced. It was the strangest sensation. It was like everything that I had like, I guess, cause my parents handled their divorce so well, even though it sucked for a lot of reasons that are very different for the reasons why it would be hard for my kids, or at least there's, there are some reasons that are not the same. Um, it, it, there was still that pain was just there. You know, I didn't go to therapy for it for divorce or anything. So that was really shocking to me. Cause I was like, fuck, this is how my kids feel, you know, like that is there. And I felt a little bit, I didn't feel that much better after the trip, but I needed to get that out. And I haven't cried like that since I certainly have, I certainly have, but that was like a, it was primal. Yeah. It was really just needed to get it out. And so I used mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms about three or four times, three times in a very intentional way of like, okay, April, you know, check in with yourself and see where things are and get emotional and, you know, just go there. And that has been very, very helpful. Um, I was smoking a lot of weed, like because of the pandemic, um, being at home, I have ADHD too. So, you know, just like trying to sit still and and remain optimistic. And I'm super grateful for cannabis during the pandemic. It was, yeah, it was great. I also knew that I needed to take about a year to like wean myself off of my daily habit. And so then I brought in um, psilocybin again, about a uh, one month before it was a year since I moved out and I'm sort of microdosing. And I noticed that three days had gone by and I hadn't smoked any weed. And I thought, huh, okay, this is this is what we talk about. This is what people say. And it was true for me. And what came up for me is I just had so much anxiety that the weed was uh, masking. And then what I really figured out is that I was dealing with high functioning depression. And I've never been diagnosed with depression. Of course, that's something that's often comorbid people that have an ADHD diagnosis. So, you know, I call myself emo. <laughs> I know I can go there, but this was different. This was like, um, yeah, I just was, couldn't get happy, you know, just not really. And so at that time, I also have a podcast called The High Guide and an at-home ketamine company reached out to me because they wanted their lead clinician to be a guest. And so I had really strong negative opinions about ketamine um, and ketamine-assisted therapy. I had never done it recreationally, but people that I knew that had were really clear. Like, you know, I one one woman said, I can have a bag of cocaine in my house and I won't touch it for a month, but ketamine won't last 30 seconds. And so why are we putting these clinics up all over the place? Is this the next opioid epidemic? Like 
really, really concerned because I guess I didn't trust humans, you know, to use this in a way that was responsible, nor do I trust the medical system to have patients' best needs in mind all the time, right? So I think that my fears were were well-founded. Um, so the load, so lozenges, at-home lozenges that they send to you, um, they're super low dose. So this and, is ketamine yeah. lozenges. Oh, ketamine. Mm-hmm. So, because in the UK, all of this is illegal, including cannabis. So where you are in the US, is some of that illegal or is it legal for medical, like yeah. through a clinic? Yeah. Okay. So these really good questions. So ketamine has been prescribed off label for, um, okay, I'm going to try to keep this simple for depression. And there are therapists and, and PTSD and OCD and a few different things, right? There are therapists that use it and they're not licensed to use it. Um, it is not legal for them to bring it into the therapy session. Um, but people have them because they know it's helpful. So what happened during the pandemic is when lockdown happened, the Biden administration changed the regulations around telehealth. And so now you could call a doctor and get a prescription over the phone. You didn't have to go in. And so ketamine prescriptions fell into that. And that's why you didn't have to go to a clinic and have an IV drip or an intramuscular shot. You could have these lozenges shipped to your home. If you lived in a state, and I do, I live in Washington state, where a compounding pharmacy can compound ketamine legally. So they call in the prescription to your state and then it ships from Washington. They compound it and then it ships within the state to me. That's how it worked. That's all being rearranged now. That's all being rolled back. Can't do telehealth. So now these ketamine companies don't really know what they're doing, but they're trying to figure it out by partnering with... Um, therapists in states where it's legal so that you can work in that way. Yeah. So there was a short window where it was okay. So is cannabis legal where you are or medicinally? It's just completely live, legal. Yeah. Washington state was, it was actually the first state to legalize adult use cannabis, although Colorado gets credit for it because they went into effect before we did. But yeah, Washington state um, legalized adult use cannabis in 2014. So I'm just thinking for, because I have seen cannabis and smoked it um, in Amsterdam where it is legal. Uh, but for people who are like, oh my goodness, I don't know anything about drugs. I've never seen drugs. Like, I don't know what happens. Could you describe each of the drugs you've mentioned, like what they look like sure. and how you get them and the effect they have? Yeah. So cannabis is, it's a, it's a plant. And it it has, well, we've bred it to have really high levels of THC, but as nature intended, there's um, this psychoactive cannabinoid called THC, which binds to receptors in your brain and is really, I like to think of cannabis as a, it treats symptoms. So if you're having pain, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, binds to receptors, and it helps to alleviate that pain for the time being. Um, you can you can consume it in a variety of ways, right? You can eat it. You don't have to combust and inhale. You can also vaporize it. And taking the flower, which is what the dry herb is, and grinding that and vaporizing that versus oil is really the safest way to consume it. Um, so psilocybin mushrooms is a hallucinogenic and also used for depression at various levels, depression, you know, breakthroughs in terms of trauma, um, feeling at peace with yourself in the world. Uh, yeah, a lot of, there are just so many conditions that psilocybin is proving, um, through research to be helpful. Cannabis doesn't have the same amount of research behind it that, um, different psychedelics do, including psilocybin at this point. So, but if you take it in a microdose, that the high is imperceptible. There's no, you're just a little bit lighter in your mood, but nothing, objects do not appear to be brighter and, you know, all of that. Ketamine was uh, discovered in the 1960s and has been used as an analgesic and a, um, an antiseptic in surgery. 
um, so that people are just like, they're in that twilight stage, right? They don't necessarily go all the way under and people use it for um, like, I think my kid had it when he had to have something done to his toe, which was really weird. Um, so, and that at higher doses is for the most part, what I hear is people completely dissociate, right? Like they are separate from their body. They're floating above their body. They're separate. The way that this woman, Kaya Roman, who also hosts her own podcast called Sight, described it to me is you can leave, <laughs> you can leave the body that is causing you so much in the mind that's causing you so much pain and just get a reprieve for a little bit where you can look at everything from an outsider's perspective. And when you're in that state and you're thinking about your life and the things that you like about it, that you like to change about it, the questions you should be asking yourself are, are, are really coming from a place of curiosity. You have to take the judgment out of it. Like, why did I do this? I'm going to do that again. And these people, and eh, it's just more like, hmm, why do I think that? Why do I feel like that's going to actually happen again? What's pointing to that happening? You know, and so when I'm intentionally consuming these substances, it's really like I'm trying to foster a place of curiosity that I'm about myself and my life because I'm the first person to judge myself and, you know, and question if I'm going to ever get there. So it's just nice to be in a place where you're like, okay, that recording that's just stuck on a loop that is no longer true. Let's just suppress that for a minute, which is what psychedelics do. They help to suppress your ego so that new thoughts can come in and you can see things from a different place. So I had mentioned that cannabis is really good with symptoms, but ketamine and psilocybin really help to get to the root cause and help you deal with trauma or what is making you anxious, um, what is making you depressed, what's making you angry. And so cannabis for me was a really necessary escape for a long time. Um, but it just got to a place where it was getting between me and my potential. With that said, I still consume. I consume weekly. I'm not much of a drinker. And so that's really how cannabis came into my life when I stopped drinking and wanted an alternative. Yeah. And with the mushrooms, do you take, well, you know, when you said you took mushrooms on the Friday when you moved in, did you consume the actual mushroom or was it? Yeah, you're nodding. And then microdosing. How oh, does capsules. that work? A capsule. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So the whole fruit bodies are, is the dried mushroom, and oftentimes you can. I like to tell people there are a couple of ways that I think are good to consume. One is as a tea. That's really the first way that I recommend because it you slow down. You know, there's a ritual around it. You're doing this now. You're thinking about it as you're grinding, cutting up your mushrooms and preparing your water and your kettle and. Um, and then the other way to do it is to cut up the mushrooms, put them in a small glass and um, let them soak in lemon. And that's called a lemon tech. And oftentimes that will bring on the effects sooner, but they don't last as long. Um, yeah. So it just depends on if you're looking to do this in a certain amount of time, or you want to get, you know, as high as possible, then you would do a lemon tech. The trip for me is always four hours from start to finish. Yeah. And then with the ketamine, you said lozenges. So is it like a sweet that you suck? <laughs> it's not a sweet. Okay. So it's <laughs> like a type of. Yeah. It doesn't taste terrible, but you have to keep it in your mouth and you can't swallow at all for 10 minutes. Oh, think about that. So you hard. keep it in this. And it's really hard. It's really, really hard. It becomes less hard, but yeah. So I think the lozenges are a good place to start. If I had the budget and I could go to a clinic and spend between $450 and $1,000 per session, um, then I would, I would, I'm very, very curious about the IV drip um, to, to start because these are not just things that allow you to hallucinate and think about your life. There's actually ketamine repairs your brain from the cortisol that is causing dendrites, which are, um, think of them as little fingers on receptors that help to bind neurotransmitters. And those stress, cortisol is created when you have stress. When that happens, these dendrites, they shrivel up and go inside. And so dopamine can't find them. You know, all the good chemicals can't get there. 
So ketamine comes in and helps to repair them and form new neural pathways. And the research that I've done is it seems to me like this should really be investigated in a big way for ADHD because of the connection that it helps to form. Um, again, I'm not going to go into all the science with your prefrontal cortex and executive functioning. So, yeah. At the moment, I'm going through a referral to whether I officially have ADHD or not. I feel that I do from mm -hmm. doing lots of research. Yeah. So um, that's really interesting you talking about those sorts of things because I think in the UK we hear about ketamine as a horse tranquilizer yeah and it's like people take it and then they're just yeah not really there anymore and completely like passed out no emotion so just before we go back into this uh because I know you mentioned the lady who you were going to have in your podcast who's going to send you ketamine how did you get into the world of cannabis and psychedelics and research and, and that? Well, as I mentioned, I went to architecture school. So when, ket when um, cannabis became legal in Washington state, a friend of mine had started working for essentially a, a VC here or a private equity, I should say, um, company that was focused on the cannabis space. And she was telling me about it. And I was like, she said there was nobody that was creating really good looking accessories and there was nobody doing anything for women. And I'm, again, I'm a creative, right? There's not a lot of opportunities for us to make money, <laughs> like real money. At least there, at least there weren't um, 20 years ago. Now being a creative is, and being an entrepreneur is like, you know, people go to school for that. There was no school when I was starting. You just sort of like, oh, do I want to go into architecture or advertising? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh my God, this is, this is a great opportunity, Right. This is going to be so much fun. I'm going to design some cool shit. I'm having a good time. Let's do this. And so I just started working on a line of stash accessories, like design forward stash accessories. And I actually, and, and we launched at a soft launch November, 2015, really went to market in January. And then by April 1st, I realized that this plant interacts with a woman's body in a super specific way. And there aren't enough people telling women that, and they're trying all these other pills and you know, different interventions that either have side effects that are unwanted or they're just not quite helping. And, you know, I was at an age two where I was watching a lot of people drink a lot. So I thought, hmm, okay, well, at least they should feel good about choosing this as an alternative and not feel like they're going to be judged. There was still a lot of shame and stigma around cannabis consumption. So my company really ended up being focused on women and all the content we created was around we did a survey of 1500 North American women so that women could see that they're not the only ones who are scared and curious and trying to figure this out. So that the name of that company was Vanderpop. And I sold that um, in 2018 to Canopy Growth, which is the largest cannabis company in the world. So that was a wild ride <laughs> for three years. And after I sold, I started um, my first podcast, which was focused on cannabis. And two years in, I started watching these cannabis influencers and cannabis brands talk about psilocybin. And I thought, I get it, you know, and, and we've done now, we've done uh, market research and audience survey and understand there's a, there really is an overlap between cannabis and psilocybin in terms of people's, um, either their consumption or usage or willingness to try. They're well-versed in both, I guess you could say. So I started another podcast and this time I called it the high guide because I wanted to focus on THC, the stuff in weed that gets you high rather than CBD and thinking of it from more of a wellness perspective, but more of like a, Hey, I just want to do this because it's fun. And that was the first season. And then in the season since I've really focused on psilocybin psychedelics and, um, and other psychedelics and, and integration. So the difference between you and I going out on a beautiful day and taking some mushrooms and then like having all these stories to tell our friends and, you know, a shared, shared memories with one another is this is integration. It's what you do after the trip is over. Are you journaling? Are you meditating? What are you doing to reinforce those new neural pathways that have been formed and to remind yourself of all of the thoughts that you had during your trip, which can help you move forward in your life and in whatever way you've intended that trip to help you with. And so this show has really started focusing on integration, making sure that, you know, there are a couple of ways to do this. You can do it for fun and you can do it, you know, and listen, I was doing it for fun for years and it changed my life when I wasn't even trying. So that's also possible. 
Um, but there are pretty simple tools that you can use to really maximize and optimize these journeys. So I use the podcast as a way to educate myself on psychedelics, right? Because people have really been doing this for decades and decades and decades and have more information than I do. And because I'd had some success in cannabis, I could get pretty cool guests to talk to me. <laughs> um, and now I am launching four brands this spring. Wow. Um, one is a card deck that you can play while you're under the influence um, of psilocybin. And it helps you to integrate in real time. And you also, you can do it alone. You can do it with people, ask questions. And, and one of the main points of this is to help people tap into their inner child. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before, but like you and I, we're serious. We got our career. Don't fuck with our schedule. Get stuff going on. Okay. So when are you going roller skating, right? When are you having a dance party with your, you know, right? When are you having fun? And so the cards are a big part of that is in the cards because I think a lot of people could use some help smiling <laughs> and laughing about right now. And then um, I last year I launched underground a psilocybin brand called Ray Ray to try to figure out like, okay, who's buying this? What do they want in terms of a product? Do they just want the whole fruit bodies? Do they want microdose capsules? Do they want chocolates? And I set up myself as an alias called Iris and put up a Proton Mail account and like put a couple of comments on or um made a couple of comments on three of my podcasts and people started emailing Iris. And so now I've got that brand that's going to launch in decriminalized markets. I just give it away. Can't sell it, but you can give it away. So that's how we're going to start with that brand. And um, and we're going to start it at events called VT. So you show up, get, and I serve psilocybin tea. We play the card game there will be a surprise guest at some point in the four hours that we're together. And then when you go home, there's a gift bag that includes psilocybin. So those start next month here in Seattle. Wow. Um, I feel so left out in the UK where all of it's legal. <laughs> I'm like, can I visit? Um, of course. So so you said you were um you were doing this podcast and someone introduced and this was during your um early days of your divorce experience and someone said to you about ketamine and was that the first time you tried ketamine mm -hmm. yeah, yeah it was yeah and how yeah, did that experience go when you were in the midst of your divorce and all of that emotion so I took I had the ketamine treatments about a year after I moved out so you know I think it was one of the tools that kind of got me over the hump and into the, you know, as my mom told me, it would take a year, got me past that. And I really don't like, I mean, my, my friends that, that love to consume narcotics, love ketamine. It is their favorite. I do not understand why I did not like how it made me feel. Yeah. But again, doing it for my brain health. And that's why I want to try it in a, a different method of consumption, because I, Mm, I don't know I, if if it's stronger, if it's more potent, which is what I'm basically saying I want to try. I was pretty nauseous and I felt drunk and I don't really like that feeling. So for me, it wasn't like a great, I wasn't rushing to do it again. Um, but the results speak for themselves. And I really, you know, I didn't consume any weed for a month after I did it the first time. So that's pretty remarkable. In order to continue to have that success, what I now understand is that I really need to do ketamine every single week for four weeks or every four days for four weeks, depending on who you talk to, to really like, I don't know, blast out some of <laughs> the old thinking um, that that's in there. And I haven't signed up for that type of um, protocol yet. And And why do they recommend that? Is that because the neural pathways changed, as you said, or is it because of something you do whilst you're on the trip? It's it's really carving new neural pathways and reinforcing that in a short period of time so that your new way of thinking is easier to bring into life with, you know, when you're not under the influence of ketamine. I know I don't didn't explain that very well. And actually you're showing me that I need to like really know how to explain that better. But that is in a nutshell, that's what you're trying to do is to is to reconfigure how your brain thinks about yourself and your life. 
Yeah. And, and, and you need tune-ups. You have to do it. You don't just do it once um, or four times right in a row. You have to keep doing it. Um, and so, you know, with all the changes in regulation now, it's, I just got an email from the company that I used and they're like, we're trying to figure this out. So I don't know how much access I will have. Yeah. And for, for people listening who are worried about things like drug addiction and misuse of drugs, what would you say to them and how do you kind of factor that into your job? listen, it's, yeah. I mean, as a person with an addictive personality, um, that's, was one of my biggest concerns about ketamine. And I feel very differently now. I, I would not snort it up my nose, even, even the, the other, only one FDA approved ketamine drug and it's a nasal spray. I wouldn't use that either. I just, from what I've learned about your, um, you have op opioid receptors in your nose and ketamine, the way that it binds with those receptors. I've got mixed I've gotten mixed research in terms of like, should we really be concerned about this? But it's enough of a concern where I feel like don't put ketamine up your nose, which is how everyone does it recreationally. So um, you're more likely to become dependent on it if you choose to consume it in that way. But it's being used and there there isn't research to back this up. But it's being used for substance use disorder. And people are using ketamine to come off of cannabis to curb their alcohol use. So, and same thing with psilocybin, right? It's not, and Bill, was his name? Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. He did over a hundred LSD trips. He wasn't just coming off of alcohol, cold turkey, right? Like these are here, they can help you when you're working with the right medical provider and you're doing it in a super intentional way but it, it requires work. Right. And it's a huge, it can be very expensive too, which is one of, which is one of the reasons why I have a podcast. I want people to be able to listen to it. And if they can go and find access to these medications, they don't necessarily have to sit with a therapist. There's a lot of, there's a lot of work that can be done and a lot of progress that can be made, you know, on your own too. Yeah. Can you remind us of your podcast if anyone's interested and they want to find out more? Yeah, sure. It's called The High Guide and we're online at thehigh.guide. And yeah, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So just going back to your divorce, do you, how do you think psychedelics helped you or did they help you through that recovery process? There was just a lot of peace that I needed to come to and I needed to shed a lot of um, guilt, a lot of guilt, tons of guilt for what I had done to the man that I loved for two decades of my life um, and to obviously my children. So it's helped me heal from that. Um, I think that's a work in progress, but I feel a lot better. And I also think that it allowed me to just be, you know, not like, okay, I'm going to zoom through this and I'm going to get to the next thing to prove that I did, that this is the right thing to do. Once I'm settled in a new life, <laughs> it will all make sense. Right. And like, just be, just be, just feel the feels that don't feel so great. Yeah. So I just needed some help, like being okay with the fact that I felt like real shit. And I got a therapist for a little bit last year and she was really, really amazing. And I wish I could continue working with her, but it doesn't make sense for me right at the moment. So yeah, I'm grateful to psychedelics for yeah helping me get out of my own head <laughs> when I needed to and help me confront things that were in my head when I needed to. And was there anything useful when you were kind of in the thick of the divorce whirlwind that any family or friends did for you? Because we have a lot of, you know, family and friends of people getting divorced. Listen, you, is there any kind of takeaways that you think were really useful that someone did? I couldn't believe how much people kept showing up. They kept calling me. They kept texting me. They kept inviting me. I mean, I really, I've just, I've hidden out, right? I just, a friend of mine told me, just uh, Sunday that it was three years. She just wanted to hide out because she was so ashamed that she was divorced and it took her a long time to like show her face again. I completely understood that. And if I don't think, I think if my friends hadn't, you know, been like, Hey, we're showing up, we're coming over what's going, you know, I would have been happy to just sort of move piles around my place for God knows how long. So I think just I'm not a different person. I'm I'm very, very keenly aware recently as we're really coming out and being more social that I am no longer attached 
to and this man, you know, and what that means when you go to events where you're with a significant other or now you're not. So yeah, that is new for me. I'm like, okay, here are my own, which I always was, but I would go out by myself a lot, a, a lot. <laughs> and it never bothered me, but it's funny. Like, oh, there's no one at home now. Oh, what does that mean about me? So yeah. And now I've got like lo loads of friends that are getting divorced. It's crazy. Actually, I don't know if you're experiencing that, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think for a long time, it was like people worried that I was going to make them get divorced because I got yes. divorced, <laughs> like it was spreading. Um, yeah. But now it's, yeah, I'm sort of a person that lots of people message if that's yeah. going on. Um, but it's interesting you said about going to events, you know, when you're single or when you're newly divorced, because one of the first questions new people ask you is like, you know, about partners and, and things like that. And it's quite, I remember at the beginning, it felt quite vulnerable to say, mm -hmm. I don't have one, you know, like yeah. I'm here on my own, even if, as you said, you were going out on your own before, but <laughs> you could say, yeah, I'm married or, um, right. And uh, you mentioned that you had a lot of shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think a lot of women I speak to especially seem to have that, um, more of the the shame. What can we do with that? Oh, that's such a nice question. What can we do with that? I mean, for me, it's just really recognizing that as an individual, I've never walked through this life the way that other people do. I've always been, you know, I mean... I'm not going to say I'm an outsider, but I'm certainly not like, I'm certainly not taking the path that's well-worn by people ahead of me. So part of my process was like honoring that, you know, you're just, you shouldn't be totally surprised that you're divorced, right? You should be thrilled that you're not divorced for the third time <laughs> because you have ADHD. You're supposed to be married five times in this life. So, you know, okay, got through one. Um, but I think it's just really, you know, oh my gosh. Okay. So I don't really want to talk about this because I'm not a professional, but people talk about their shadow side, right? You hear this a lot in psychedelic therapy is you have to embrace your shadow side and become whole and be okay with the parts of you that you want to stay hidden. And you know what? It's actually true. It's totally true, right? Like all of this is who you are, right? So I, I listen to you on your podcast and how honest you are about how you live your life. And that's part of it, right? Like not everyone's going to feel comfortable talking fully about what they're up to, but you should be able to have that conversation with yourself without judgment. And so that's what I've started to do is just really honor the parts of me that I don't maybe want other people to see, but I know is there. And I know, you know, it's important for me to flex. So it's a process, but I guess I have less shame now because I do feel super confident that this is going to be the best outcome in terms of as compared to the alternative of staying married for my family. There's no question about that. You know, is it the best outcome for my partner? That's up to him. You know, is it the best outcome for my kids? Well, that was sort of up to us to manage as best possible. And we're doing that. But really, it's their life, you know, like, I don't know if they're going to start dating someone and adopt that family because they're whole and easier, right? I don't know, right? That's that the future remains to be seen. But I can't spend a lot of time worrying about that because then it just gets in the way of me loving them, you know, just like being present and being with them now. So shame is shame, like guilt, it's totally useless. <laughs> After a certain point, you know, like, it's just useless. Yeah, I love that. Shame and guilt are useful, useless, but also honoring your shame is a sort of strange, feels like a juxtaposition, but there's, yeah, I can totally relate to that. And I, I feel like I'm not there, but I'm trying and it helps. It's helped me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's it been a pleasure to chat to you. Agreed. Yes. Can you um, remind us where people can find more information out about you, please? Sure. Yeah. Again, my name is April Pride and you can find The High Guide podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Instagram at the high.guide, online at the high.guide, and you can find me at April Pride. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, hi. Thank you for listening to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines. Please leave us a review. Please, please. Um, it would be super nice. They're lovely to read. They keep me cheery and happy and keep me going. Uh, but also it affects our listing in the podcast charts, uh, which are very important because that's how more people find the podcast. And I'd love to help more people get through those really tough heartbreak and divorce times. And they're more likely to find us if we're higher up on the charts. So if you'd like to leave a review, I'd love you forever. You can leave them on iTunes is the big one or most podcast platforms do them as well. I'll take all the reviews you've got to give. You can also uh, get in contact on Twitter and Instagram at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. We have a website, thedivorcesocial.com and we have a Patreon account, which means that you can support the podcast for as little as £2 a month and it helps me with all the admin costs. It also means you have access to our 90 style divorce and heartbreak chat room and there's lots of exclusives on there, little bits of audio that you don't get in the main podcast and some giveaways as well. So I'd love to see you over on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Samantha Baines and please leave a review. Did I say that already? Please leave a review. Love you forever.